0: Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journeying beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I take two episodes of the show, give a summary of the plot, share notable cast and crew trivia, and then delve into my feelings on the episode as a viewer. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Contact me on Facebook at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or, of course, you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. Today on the show, I'll be discussing episodes 5 and 6 of season 1 of The Twilight Zone. Uh, these episodes are Walking Distance and Escape Clause. Both episodes are about people displeased with their life and seeking happiness in very different and very strange places, of course, in The Twilight Zone. Without further ado, let's get to talking about these episodes, shall we? So the first episode this week is Walking Distance. It aired October 30th, 1959, and it's one that I'm pretty excited to talk about. Um, As always, here's an episode summary. I will be spoiling it, so if you haven't seen it yet uh, and you don't want to be spoiled, go check it out on Netflix or Hulu and come back. Martin Sloan is a 36-year-old vice president of an ad agency in New York. When the pressures of his job get the better of him, he drives to escape his troubles. After stopping to get his car serviced, Martin notices a sign for Homewood, his hometown only a a mile and a half away. Walking distance. Martin walks to town and finds everything exactly as he remembers it. Nothing has changed because he's walked back into 1934 and soon finds his parents and his 11-year-old self. Desperate to warn his young self to savor his childhood, he inadvertently causes young Marty to break his leg. When Martin's father finds him to return the time traveler's wallet and tell him he knows who he is, Martin's father tells him he can't stay. Martin realizes that his father is right and heads back to his life. So as usual, I'm going to start by breaking down the cast and, and the crew of the episode, but I should warn you that this the behind-the-scenes of this episode is are a little uh, troubling and a little depressing, I guess. So it stars Gig Young. He was born with the name Byron Barr, and he developed a love of theater in high school, which led to being accepted into the acclaimed uh, Pasadena Community Playhouse. While he was in a play called Poncho, he and his castmate George Reeves were spotted by a Warner Brothers talent scout and signed supporting player contracts with the studio. Uh, In 1942, he was cast as a character named Gig Young in the movie The Gay Sisters. Uh, Since there was already an actor named Byron Barr, uh, he actually just adopted the name Gig Young as his stage name, Uh, which uh, it's kind of – that's something interesting. I've never known of anyone ever to do that. Um, The Gay Sisters actually boosted his career quite a bit, but uh, his career was really postponed because of the war. Uh, he served in the Coast Guard for three years in the Pacific, and after the war, after he came back from the war, he actually continued acting and started landing like leading man adjacent roles. What I mean by that is like, uh, kind of second build characters, uh, supporting characters, stuff like that. Um, in 1951, he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for uh, a role in a movie called Come Fill the Cup. Seven years later, he also got. Another best supporting actor nod for a comedic turn in the movie *Teacher's Pet*. Um, he worked prolifically in television alongside his uh, film career, hence this role in *Twilight Zone*. And then finally, in 1969, he won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role in *They Shoot Horses, Don't They*? Unfortunately, and this is where it gets a little a little dark, I guess. Uh, he was an alcoholic. He had an, he had a a string of marriages. He was married five times from 1940 until his death in 1978. Um, Three weeks after marrying his fifth wife, Kim Schmidt, he shot her to death and then committed suicide. In his will, he left his Oscar to his agent, Martin Baum. Uh, The Oscar was found beside the two bodies. Uh, Martin Baum said that gig knew real pain at, at his memorial service. So uh, it's a tragic end for, Someone who, I, I don't know any of his other work or anything. I haven't seen anything else he's been in. But uh, he did a really good job performing in this episode of The Twilight Zone. And it sounds like he had a lot of demons. Co-starring as Martin's father, Robert, in this episode is Frank Overton. Uh, He was a character actor who worked a lot in the 50s and 60s in television. Uh, He kind of had a specialty for authoritative characters. He played uh, Sheriff Heck Tate in To Kill a Mockingbird, and he played a general in Failsafe. He went on to appear in another episode of The Twilight Zone in 1963 called Mute. Uh, We'll get to that eventually. Um, He passed away from a heart attack in 1967 at the age of 49. Also appearing in this episode is uh, Ron Howard, uh, uh, credited as Ronnie Howard. This was about a year before the Andy Griffith Show premiered, and and I, what I noticed from it, from his IMDb, is that he worked a lot. He worked so much in in that year, basically making a lot of appearances on different television shows. And here, he just plays a kid in the neighborhood, and uh, you know, it's not. Maybe he's only got a couple lines and everything, but uh, it's a f- worth mentioning. It's worth mentioning. I have an anecdote about this: is that one of the um, one of the books that I'm using as a, as a reference material for this podcast is uh, the Twilight Zone Companion, which I actually wrote a review of it on ObsessiveBooknerd.com. Um, and it's funny because this book was written in like I think like the uh, the early '80s, I think. And I'm reading the second edition of it, which is, which was updated about seven seven or eight years after it was published. But anyway, for this episode, it references Ronnie Howard of Happy Days fame, and I thought that was pretty funny because obviously he's you know one of the he's a very he's a very noteworthy director. Obviously, he's a very famous director now, and uh, he's he's probably one of the he probably has one of the greatest transitions from child actor to an adulthood uh, Hollywood career. Um, just for, just for, you know, uh, S's and G's, uh, my favorite movie that he's directed is probably Apollo 13. Um, although, you know, Rush was a really good one that was recent. Um, although I I wouldn't say that it's good enough to be like one of my favorites, but I think that it was a really solid movie. Um, And also, I haven't seen these two in a while, but I really feel like Frost Nixon and Cinderella Man are kind of underappreciated. And I also have a soft spot for Backdraft from, like I think it was like 93, uh, with Kurt Russell and one of the Baldwins. I'm going to say Stephen Baldwin, or maybe William Baldwin, Billy Baldwin, I don't know. But anyway, um, Backdraft, (laughs) Uh, I think Scott Glenn was also in this movie, but... I, that was one of those movies that I was, like, really young, way too young to watch it, and I just watched it all the time, like a VHS copy of it, and I, I just, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, anyway, so, as I said, Walking Distance was an early role for him. A year later, with a ton of credits in between, the Andy Griffith show started. Um, and obviously, you know, he would go on to do American Graffiti and do a, do a very, very prestigious... Uh, directing career um he's also he was also in the running or or one of the people that was developing a, a an adaptation of stephen king's the dark tower uh, a few years ago and that fell through for him but i think he's still producing the one that they're currently in talks of of doing at sony so i don't know if it'll happen but i have uh <laughs> i have bought the domain the domain name uh, thedarktowerpodcast.com, dot com because I know that if that ever happens I'm going to want a podcast about it so so stay tuned for that. Uh, writer for this episode is of course Rod Sterling, as he wrote most of the other episodes. Um, this episode takes a pretty negative view of executives, at least from my perspective. It's kind of this kind of. You know the whole story of this episode is that this this businessman is upset over you know his life as a businessman and seeks to reclaim his youth or to really tap into his nostalgia as a cathartic experience by going back to his hometown. He wants to go home again because he can't handle the stress and the pressure of his prestigious and successful job as an ad executive. Um, and I feel like that's that's a very negative. <laughs> That's a very negative look at kind of the business businessman uh, stereotype, I guess. I don't know if that was intentional on Rod Serling's part or, or not, but I think that's something worth mentioning. Um, also, this is a really poignant story about a man who he wants to flee his adult life and reclaiming recapture what made his youth so special. And I feel like... Serling – well, okay. Serling wrote this when he was about 35 years old, right when he was becoming one of the most successful writers in show business. It was actually probably a couple of years after he became a more noteworthy presence in the Hollywood uh writing scene i guess so i don't know if he used walking distance as an escapist fantasy in his more doubtful moments or not but i could see that i could see this script being a cathartic reminder to leave the past behind and to really kind of keep a perspective on his present and his future and not get too wrapped up into all of the all of the pressures of, of his job i could definitely see that um That's just conjecture on my part. I have no idea if Serling wrote it with that intention or not, but I think that there could be an interesting correlation there. And finally, the director for this episode is Robert Stevens, who directed Where Is Everybody, uh, the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, After this, he didn't direct any more episodes, but he was a very prolific director in the 50s and 60s, and in particular in television. Uh, He directed a lot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, um, I think it was something like forty-four episodes of that show, plus several episodes of the uh, spin-off show or the or the continuation of that show. Um, I think the Hel- the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. I think that's what it's called. I didn't write in my notes. I apologize. Um, and he's the only director from Hitchcock's two shows to win an Emmy for his work on that. So that's. You know, I really liked his direction, and where is everybody and I'll talk more about his his work in this episode in particular, but I could definitely see that because he's he's very talented at um at you know telling the story <laughs> um, but after nineteen seventy he worked a lot less, and this is where it uh this is where it gets a little dark here. Also, he uh, he died of a heart attack after he was beaten and robbed in a home invasion in Connecticut. I think this was in the mid '80s. Uh, the Associated Press mistakenly referred to him as a television writer after his death, and uh, you know that's just such a such a bummer to see someone who worked so much and uh, I only have two episodes of television to really gauge my opinion of his of his work but judging from these two episodes of The Twilight Zone he was a very talented director and it's kind of a shame to see or to know that his work I guess went unappreciated or maybe not unnoticed but just not that he didn't garner the kind of reception after his death that I feel like his talent necessitated, I guess. So we've come to my feelings as a viewer on this episode, and I mentioned last week that I would have a lot to say about this episode because I love time travel, and I really do. Um, <laughs> I guess it's somewhat worth mentioning that this episode is credited as, or J.J. Or, uh, Abrams has said that this is his favorite episode, The Twilight Zone. But anyway, I can definitely see that because this is such a such a great mind-bending I don't even know if I would say mind-bending, but it's a really strong, strong emotional episode that's tied to this very straightforward time travel premise. And uh, I really love the way that Robert Stevens used mirrors to create the time travel effect. Um, Martin gets out of his car at the service station. He goes to, to the cigarette machine, and that's when he notices the sign that Homewood is nearby. So he tells the service the serviceman that he's going to go walk to this town. So the camera just zooms in on the on the mirror of the cigarette machine and he walks off to to Homewood and then it kind of just there's a slow dissolve to where it just fades to black and then comes back to The next scene that takes place in a soda shop when has Martin walking into the soda shop in 1934. And that's the it's a very bare bones way of introducing time travel into an episode. There isn't some big effects heavy um, device or or any kind of flashes or anything like that. It's just a straightforward dissolve. And I think that that really, really does well it's well suited given that the episode has such a strong uh character focus on martin and his inability to divorce himself from the nostalgia of his past and how his greed makes him want to be a part of the past or wants to reclaim his past or or anything like that um and then this is also mimicked later in the episode when he time travels back to 1959 uh because it just kind of he pops up he jumps up on the on the merry-go-round and as it's spinning around the camera dissolves and goes to uh goes to a scene of the soda shop again but it's zoomed in or it's focused on the spinning record of of the jukebox and i think that that's just i really appreciated that way of of signaling to the audience that the changes happen without without making a big show of it and keeping the episode and the story grounded in in martin's story um as I said, Martin's a greedy character, somewhat. Um, although he's, it's interesting because he starts off being just really, really agitated and very, very kind of belligerent to the service state, the to the um, gas station attendant, and you know he it kind of follows the line of the line of logic or the line of. Uh, or the pattern, I should say, of uh, these Twilight Zone characters being kind of ordinary people or relatable people. Because he's belligerent to the gas station attendant, but then when he realizes that, or, or like after a moment, he just he apologizes to him. He's like, "Yeah, sorry." And then he, when he walks off to the uh, to Homewood, when he gets there, he he's there's a there's a kind of sense of instant catharsis. Um, where he just walks in and he's just super chipper, super happy, and I think that's part of it is that it's a way to signal to the audience that he is a character that we can get behind, even though that he was very agitated earlier in the se- earlier in the episode. But when he realizes he's time traveled, he he wants more. He wants to he wants to make sure that he knows, uh, he wants to make sure that he tells his young self to savor his youth and and really appreciate it. And it's you know. Maybe I misspoke, and he's not necessarily greedy so much as um, trapped by his present. He doesn't see the the cotton candy and carousels and, and band concerts and stuff like that in his in his adult life, and he, I guess, where the greediness comes in is that he wants to reclaim his youth. He wants to take his youth. He wants to be. He doesn't want to just be nostalgic for his past. He wants to relive his past, and that's what drives him to go after Young Martin to tell him to savor his youth and to really appreciate it and everything like that. Even though it comes with, to a disa- with disastrous consequences. What I really liked about the way that the story develops in this episode, however, is that um, when Martin sees his young self carving his name on the on the uh, on the on the gazebo thing, he doesn't. That isn't enough to convince him that he's time traveled, <laughs> even though he literally sees himself and recognizes himself and knows himself. It's a very natural reaction that he's that he has to this this really just crazy predicament that he's in is that he doesn't believe it because it, it would be it would have been an easy way for him to be convinced instantly that he's time traveled, and in that case, it would be very interest or it would have been. An easier way to transition into the second act of the episode or the second half of the episode. Instead, he goes to his house and he's offended when his parents don't recognize him, and and he's just he's very angry about it, and and that causes them to shut the door on his face and his face and everything. And it isn't until he really talks to the neighbor that has the new car that he kind of it kind of clicks with him. And in fact, it kind of takes there's a break in about the middle part of the episode, and then when it comes back, when it, when the episode comes back, there's uh, a mid-episode narration from Serling explaining that he's time-traveled and that he's thought about it and he has a plan in place. Um, he's he's now resolved to change the past. And this was the first time that Serling had a mid-episode narration, and I think that that's more, more of a way to... I guess more cleanly uh, transition the episode from the story of a guy trapped in the past to a guy who is in the past and wants to change his present. It's a mixed bag for me because it could have been easier. Like I said, it could have been easier to make him instantly convinced that he's changed, that he's changed, and that he could have a. Uh, it goes from cathartic to recognizing that he's in the past and then it could have just as easily been like oh i can i can re- i can change my past and all that stuff instead there's there's this uh this commercial break in in the episode that leads to a shift in the narrative like like everything's changed from day to night to uh the circumstances of his of his time travel uh, or the or his perception of the time travel i should say But I don't have a problem with it at all, actually. I think that it really helps um, move the narrative along. And it kind of separates the episode into two segments. And the second segment is a much darker um, or more ominous uh, story being told. And I can appreciate that. Something I noticed toward the end of this episode when when Martin goes to the merry-go-round and tries to warn his young self that he's... Uh, that he needs to cherish his youth and everything is that Robert Stevens. He he utilizes slanted angles again. Um, he did the same thing, in where is everybody to great effect? I really appreciated that, and I really enjoyed that. And that's something that I kind of noticed in, in these two uh, these two episodes that he directed. He both he both uses slanted angles and uses mirrors um, uh, to both to great effect, and it kind of makes me curious. To check out some of his work in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, because like I said, these these are the only two uh, pieces of his work that I have seen, and I, I kind of I kind of wonder if his if his technique is more um, uh, more varied in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, um, and that maybe the the stories being told in the Twilight Zone just necessitated these two uh, these these particular pieces of his of his uh talent because i would think that using slanted angles and mirrors and and stuff like that in the 40 40 to 50 episodes of alfred hitchcock shows that he directed i think that that would get a little tiresome um i would hate to think that he was a one-trick pony because i really appreciated his directing in both of these episodes of the twilight zone so the last seven minutes of walking distance they are incredibly touching and it's something that I really, really, really appreciated, and it's one of the more. Um, it really tugs at the heartstrings, and it really, really leaves a very strong impression of what the theme of the story is and what the the message that the show wants to convey of this. It's uh, there's a dialogue between uh, Martin and his dad that just really, just really hits home to the viewer. Um, Martin's dad comes up to him after young Martin has broken his leg or injured his leg after being chased by uh, our protagonist on the, on the merry-go-round. And so his dad tells him, he says, hey, I want to let you know that the kid's alright and that I looked through your wallet and I know that you're, I know who you are and I know that you know things about the future and stuff like that. And so they have this one of the one of the nicest like heart to hearts i've seen on on television between a father and son, and in it martin's dad tells him that he doesn't belong there. he needs to go back to his go back to his world to his present and to find the cotton candy and band concerts and carousels and everything find that there don't don't try to take the summer away from. Um, his youth, or, or to his youthful counterpart. Um, he says that there's maybe the one thing that, or the one line of dialogue that really left an impression on me was that he says maybe there's one summer to every customer, and this is his summer, and and you can't take it or anything like that. It's such a such a depressing thought, I guess. Um, and it's 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 just sad to me that it really hits home as someone who is personally, I'm, I'm close to 30. I'm not real. I'm not an old person. Oh crap. No, I'm well, I'm close to 30. And in this episode, Martin is 36. Holy crap. But it's something that resonates with me as someone who I have, I have positive memories of my childhood. And I think that at points when, when, um, it's something that harkens back to the universality of this episode or of or this series is that you can really appreciate the way that the everyman characters or the, or the very ordinary characters that are designed to appeal to mass audiences of the late 50s, early 60s, um, there's a timelessness to it and that you can really appreciate a character who is wanting a cathartic experience and and really wanting to – Uh, tap into the nostalgia of his youth because i have i have positive memories of my childhood i would love to be a kid again um but i know i can't because i have not mastered time travel yet and after this episode i don't know if i would want to (laughs) um so it's a very touching episode very strong this is one of those episodes that i'll go back and revisit um as often as I can, or as often as I want to, because this is one of those episodes that I could watch again and again because it's a very heartfelt episode it's a very strong strongly written episode the The narration at the end of the episode of Serling's closing narration is very very poignant and very heartfelt and uh and what it really conveys a nice message to put a button on the episode and I really appreciated it as for historical cultural context which that's this is a segment that i should probably rename because i never really have any historical or cultural context for it Um, but this this is something i thought about when i when watching it Um, while working on the pilot episode of this podcast i gave i gave audio files to some friends and one of them was chad from the secular perspective podcast and he mentioned that he was never really a fan of the twilight zone and that he has trouble watching things that um that aired before he was born which is something i can i can understand i can understand that if uh if you kind of feel a disconnection with with older older work um you can't really tap some people can't really tap into the to um what it is but what uh, what i found in watching Walking Distance is that this episode takes place in 1934 and 1959. And it could really serve as a good entry point into the series for people who feel like who feel like shows and movies that were before their time are are hard to get into. It's something that really makes me appreciate these types of time travel stories. Uh time travel stories of this nature are great time capsules really. Um, because specifically because they take an established character or a character that has been established in the present day in this case 1959 and by throwing them into a nostalgia-fueled story of the past it somehow makes the present of the episode or of the or, or of the work timeless and and makes it a period piece in itself it's more palatable for people who can't really connect with with uh what they view as dated material, because by making by making the focus of an episode in in the past, while also having including included pieces of um, stuff from the present day, it kind of makes for two concurrent um, period pieces. If if that makes any sense, it may be one of the reasons why Back to the Future is so timeless to me, because there's 1985. Uh, Hill Valley, and then there's 1955. And there's so much care to creating the past in these in these types of stories that it makes the present also be as pristine as, as that, if that makes any sense. I don't know. But these kind of stories take their present day, and they make it as much as a period piece as their destination. And I feel like if you have trouble getting into the Twilight Zone, or if you have trouble... Um, getting into stories of, stories that you may view as dated. Um, I recommend this as a good entry point to the series. So one other thing that's worth noting before I go into my discussion of, um, the episode of escape clause is that walking distance is one of those iconic twilight zone episodes. The, one of the ones that I can appreciate. And one of the things that I've heard about before, um, the twilight zone was really on my, on my radar. And as such, there was a comic there. I mean, there's been plenty of comics of the twilight zone in the past, but one of the more recent twilight zone, uh, comic books that, that have come into, come into being is, uh, shadow and substance, uh, from dynamite comics. Uh, their first, their first issue, actually the first two issues, um, was basically a modern day adaptation of Walking Distance. It was called Stumbling Distance. About this alcoholic uh, 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 writer who goes back to his hometown to uh, for for a book signing. And what he does is he goes back and he realizes that he's gone back into his past. And there was there was a certain edge to this comic. Um, there's basically an effort on his part to. Uh, t- t- he came he came back to a time in which he was about to do something foolish i won't spoil what that was but he his the motivation or the impetus of his the motivation of the character in the comic was to prevent this from happening and it was it, you know it was really enjoyable it was a really strong uh first two issues for a comic book i haven't i haven't read any more of uh, shadow and substance but i really liked the artwork and uh it opens and closes with uh, with narration in the style of Serling, and I don't know the the word choices, the 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 way that it's written. You you just hear a Rod Serling saying, it, and that's something that I really enjoyed. Of course, before I move on to the next episode, here's a highlight from a recent episode of the Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with two of my friends, Mike and Tiny. Alex Garland shot it really well. Um... I just I think my my issues were with the uh, the script and and just the direction that the movie went. Um, and again, this is all opinion. I mean, I'm sure there's other people who saw it who really liked it, but I I just thought it was. Uh, I, I just I didn't. If, if there was subtext or the depth to it, I I didn't pick up on it. Um, Did he write the movie as well? Yeah, he wrote and directed it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I gotta say, I'm I'm really surprised. You, <laughs> usually. Uh... Usually, we're defending ourselves against Matt, Tiny. Yeah. <laughs> we often see eye-to-eye, eye, often on especially sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Flicks. And, of course, you can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, and at obsessiveviewer.com. Okay, next up I have for you Escape Clause. This is episode 6 of Twilight Zone's first season. Um, It was aired November 6th, 1959, and as always, here is an episode summary of the episode. Walter Bedecker is a hypochondriac with severe narcissistic tendencies. He fears something as small as a draft and depends on his wife to care for his psychosomatic ailments despite harboring resentment for other people, including her. One night, Walter is visited by a man named Mr. Cadwallader. Uh, he's the devil, and he proposes to Baedeker a deal. In exchange for Walter's soul, Walter will live forever. Nothing will kill him, neither disease nor incident, unless he uses the escape clause wherein Walter can simply call upon the devil to take his life. After collecting insurance claims on numerous incidents that should have killed him, Walter finds his immortality bothersome. The thrill in his life is gone, and he's grown bored, so he decides to jump off the roof. When his wife tries to stop him, she falls to her death. This leads Walter to confess to murdering her, thinking that surviving the electric chair will reinvigorate him. Unfortunately for Mr. Bedeker, he's sentenced to life in prison with no parole. When he's locked away, Walter uses the escape clause and dies of a heart attack in his cell. Starring as Walter Bedecker is David Wayne, no relation to the present-day David Wayne who did Wet Hot American Summer. Um, Some background on David Wayne as an actor. Um, He joined a Shakespeare repertory company in Cleveland where he worked as a statistician. Um, That word, repertory, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, (laughs) He was rejected by the Army in World War II but volunteered to drive an ambulance in North Africa. While he was there, he was actually... uh, This isn't really that funny, but he was mistakenly... Um, uh, listed as killed in action um, as, as a mistake. I think it was a clerical error or something. Um, when he came back from, from driving the ambulance, uh, he saw great success on Broadway. He was actually the first person to receive an acting Tony Award at the first award ceremony in 1947. He won for a role in a play called Finian's Rainbow. Uh, in 1954, he won another uh, Tony for his role in The Tea House of the August Moon. And he was nominated in 1968 for Best Actor in a Musical for *The Happy Time*. So he was a successful actor. Um, that's pretty much all I got on David Wayne. Co-starring as the devil uh, is Thomas Gomez. Um, he kind of this is an interesting. He has an interesting backstory. He stumbled into acting after answering a help wanted ad after high school, and it actually resulted in him joining a theater group which led to him traveling across the country kind of honing his acting skills and uh which eventually led to him performing in new york's legitimate theater and what's funny about that is that he he just answered the one ad the help wanted ad in uh like 1923 1927 he had no interest in acting beforehand before that but i guess he kind of caught the bug and you know Grew from there, his film debut was in 1942, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror as a villain. He would go on to play a lot more villainous roles. I guess he was also a union man, uh, a very, very adamant union man. He actually served on the board of directors for the Screen Actors Guild. And while he, while his career had a lot of supporting roles in film, he was really a star on Broadway, and uh, had a really fruitful theater career. In 1971, he was in a car accident and passed away after three weeks in a coma. Of course, this episode was written by Rod Serling. And what I like to do in this section of the the rundown of the talent is kind of try to dissect the theme of the episode or, or kind of the hidden meanings there. So... This one's kind of tough. It's, uh, it's got kind of a clear be careful what you wish for theme that kind of goes on. Like, I mean, Bedeker wants immortality, gets immortality, things go awry. But I feel like any deeper meaning would have to reside in Bedeker as a character he's kind- of, he's filled with disdain like it's like it's almost like Serling's script goes out of its way to make you just hate Bedeker because he's so spiteful he's so hateful and he's so he's all those things, and then he's also needy like as soon as there's a scene where uh the doctor leaves and then he like bittaker yells for his wife to come shut the window because it's letting in a draft and it's killing him and then he scoffs at her and and screams at her when uh, he finds out that the doctor uh wrote a prescription for her when she needs you know medicine just to handle taking care of him so he's he's just really a just kind of just hateful kind of despicable character and i thought that that was i'll get into that in a bit but um so I, I think from that he's – it may be a tale about karma. He's, he's a dreadful person who takes an opportunity only to have it ruin him, although that theory may be negated by how common the deal with the devil pl- uh, plot is. Um, I tried to do some research on this, and the having deals with the devil, I mean that dates back to late 1800s literature. Or maybe it's that he can't find happiness in his narcissism and his unpleasantness is his downfall. Maybe that's just the theme of his that you can't be happy as, as a narcissist. Um, I don't know if any of this is reflective of Serling as, as a person at the time. Um, and then again, maybe there is no deeper meaning. Um, if you have one or if you have uh, have thoughts on what what Serling could have been saying as a statement in this episode, please you know let me know. Um, email me, tweet me, call and leave a voicemail, and let me know at three one seven seven six two six zero nine nine This episode was directed by Mitchell Lyson, uh, who also directed the sixteen millimeter shrine I think this was the this was the first episode that he directed of the of the show i think this was actually the second episode in the production order um after the lonely which is the episode i'll talk about next week he has one more episode later this season that's when i'll kind of get into more detail about him as a director so finally we come to my feelings as a viewer on escape clause and i don't i don't know it's uh, uh like i said before and when i when i was talking about rod Serling. I I hate Walter Walter Baedeker. um I really do, um and this may be a cautionary tale about narcissism, but I just I hated the character which that was somewhat refreshing after finding so many of the other characters so far so relatable and so down to earth and so kind of everyman characters in a way, but I think the the dreadfulness of Walter Bettecker kind of just leads this episode to be kind of just an okay episode for me. Um, I appreciated the filmmaking though, uh, for 1959, Walter's wife's fall, uh, looked convincing enough and the quick cutaway as Walter jumped in front of the train, coupled with the screams and the lighting and the sound of the train was really effective. Um, and very, very surprising. I <laughs> kind of didn't, didn't really see it coming. It was really, it was well done. I'm looking forward to seeing what Lyson does in the, uh, last episode that he, well, I guess that would be the second episode that he directed, because the production order has uh, the 16mm Shrine being his last one, but the last one to air, um, which I believe will be I'll be discussing in a few weeks, I think. As I said, I, I kind of view this episode as just an okay episode, but something that I did find interesting about it is that it's kind of the opposite of One for the Angels, like really really opposite um if i weren't going chronologically through the twilight zone i probably would have paired these two episodes um in fact they would really make a good double feature it's funny though how one for the angels and escape clause take different routes to the same end um like they're basically polar opposites in in terms of uh characterization and storytelling one of them we have Walter is begging the audience to hate him while Lou Bookman is an endearing, an endearing old man who loves kids. Uh, Walter goes tired of life after thrill-seeking with his Im- immortality while Lou argues and connives in a pleasant way to gain more time. Uh, Walter's cold reaction to the loss of his wife leads him to solitude while Lou's actions injure a child, which leads to him leads him to save her life. What's interesting, though, is that both men's deaths are welcome. Lou ascends peacefully while Walter gets what's coming to him, really. Um, And I'm really curious if this sort of dichotomy in the storytelling will pop up frequently as I move forward in the Twilight Zone. I'm not sure if it does or not, but it's interesting. Of Of those two episodes, I vastly... I find I find uh, one for the angels vastly superior, and uh, of these two episodes in this episode of anthology, I find um, walking distance to be a lot better than this one. Um, there's nothing there's nothing really wrong with this episode um, with Escape Clause per se, but I don't know. It was just okay. It was just okay. So I think that about does it for this week's episode of anthology. Thank you for joining me for this week's discussion of walking distance and escape clause uh if you have any thoughts on the episodes or about the podcast as a whole please get in contact with me you know where to find me i'll i'll have it in the show notes and also in the pre-recorded outro that's about to play both episodes we're pretty solid this week i really liked walking distance and i'm looking forward to next week next week is actually a really big episode um i'll be discussing episodes seven and eight of the twilight zone season one uh on one hand the lonely is a haunting tale of love and isolation and on the other hand time enough at last is perhaps the twilight zone's most iconic episode ever join me next week and until then thank you for listening to anthology Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or you can tweet me at Obsessive Viewer and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out the Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at ObsessiveViewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash Obsessive And check out ObsessiveBookNerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Join the Obsessive Viewer podcast on October 16th, 2015 at the Irving Theater in Indianapolis for The Obsessive Viewer presents Shocktober in Irvington Part 2. It's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local artists J.P. Leck and Snapshot Productions. There will be giveaways, raffles, interviews with the filmmakers, and so much more. All proceeds will go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. Go to Shoctobernervington.com for more details, and prepare to be SHOCKED.